0: The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org.
1: Our scripture reading today is from Luke twenty two fifty four through 62 Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also is with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man was also with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks, Jenny. Well, I'm not sure if any of you um, like history, or uh, even church history for that matter, but... um there's a story of one particular um, great church his, history father, if you will, um, from England that is a really amazing and encouraging story to me. Uh, we, Thomas Cranmer is his name. He's actually an English uh, reformer of in, in many of the 16th century, and many of us actually probably know more about him than we think, because often in our church, and in many churches maybe you've been in before, we recite from the Book of Common Prayer. He's the author of that. Uh, so when we recite that, sometimes come into communion or other ways. He also was the archbishop. He served as the archbishop under Henry VIII, so the big character that we know uh, who took down many of his own wives, uh, Henry VIII. But you know, one of the things that you may not know about him, and, and if you study church history or you think about those kind of things, if you read about people who've uh, gone before us in the faith, uh, we can stand on their shoulders. We think of these great giants, you know, that they, they, they didn't waver, they didn't struggle. Thomas's story is a little different. He stood at the point of time where uh, there were great tensions between both Protestant and Catholic theology. And whoever, whomever was in power really held kind of a, a strong arm in that. And as he found himself uh, really mo- considering himself more of a Protestant in, in, in nature, especially if you read the, the Book of Common Prayer, it has some inklings of that. It's connected primarily to the Episcopal Church and Anglican uh, history. He found himself uh, really in the nexus of what was a deep seated anger between the Catholic and Protestant uh, worlds. And as there was a devout queen who came into reign, he found himself wavering back and forth politically, publicly. He'd be asked questions about what he really believed, and he, he'd find himself, no matter where he was, trying to just live a life of kind of self-preservation. And finally, they realized, uh, he's not really telling us the truth. They wanted to, to seize him for his errors, particularly being a, a Protestant at that time, and to destroy him. They tried to force him to publicly recant and renounce everything he believed, and he signed a document saying that he renounced all of his, and, and, and to give a, give a speech publicly, renounce all of his beliefs. Well, at, at the moment of his trial, right before he was to be burned at the stake, he, he had a moment where, of clarity and a moment of really seeing himself for who he was. And in that, he, he recants his recantation. He essentially says, no, I do believe these things. And he finds himself saying, no, I, I really do believe that as they put him up on the stake to be burned, he held his hand out in the fire first to be burned, to be just burned off. And he said, this hand, crying out to God, he said, this is the hand that hath offended thee first. You know, read that and you think about why is that encouraging? What's well, encouraging for the sake of, you know, I don't know if you read any of the martyrs or people who have died for the faith, but what's encouraging to me about that is somebody who struggled. Somebody who wavered a lot in their faith. And even up until the end, he is searching, trying to grapple with how do I really come face to face with knowing not only what I believe in my Savior, but willing to, to believe that publicly. You know, we're, we just read a passage that goes far even further back than that, that Thomas Cranmer himself stood on, on the back of a giant known as Peter. Even his name, if you're unfamiliar with Peter, he's, you may have even heard of him, Saint Peter. You think of this name, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, he is like one of the beacons of the faith. Of Christianity. His name even means rock. And if you read this passage, you see that this is anything but a rock. You see somebody waffling, you see somebody denying his very Savior. Even after he said he would even go to death for him, he finds himself in complete self preservation. I want to encourage you, you may have heard this before. Maybe you haven't. But if you're unfamiliar with Christianity, the Bible is full of characters like this. This is, this is an interesting book because this book we think is all about rules for us being perfect. is showing those in the faith, those who follow God, particularly Jesus, of, of not being so strong at all not finding themselves just bold, chest out, like as if we think we we're, we're going to have that moment that we all hope we have where, where our faith is challenged to follow Christ. And then we can say, yeah, I follow him. This is the guy, and yet he falls. He denies Jesus publicly, not once, three times. And that should encourage us because we know the very same as Peter. We know what it's like to deny. Look, denial is different. We've looked at Judas and what it means to be a betrayer, that, that Judas betrayed Jesus. That's a, 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 a deliberate disloyalty to Jesus. But, but this denial is different. It's more of a passive. It's a it's a I'm not gonna get really involved. I'm gonna kind of keep myself from being sc- scarred or marred or or put in a category or, or, or associated with Jesus, not only if you see these denials with Jesus or anybody who else is associated with them. It's more of the passive rather than the active act of betrayal, and I think hits most of our hearts in that as well. As you look at this passage, I want us to encourage, be encouraged by a couple things. One is that we see ourselves through Peter's eyes. I mean, the fact that we get to see someone talk about how they denied Jesus in the faith, I mean, these are the followers. It should be something that it's saying to us, the Bible's crying out to, in, to you and to me that this is not only a reliable book, because if the Bible was really kind of, a, kind of trying to promote itself, it wouldn't make its number one and few followers deny their founder. And number two, it's a relatable book. Because it really says, hey, you and I know exactly what it's like to be in Peter's shoes. And so we're going to look at this. We're going to look at very simple questions of what does it mean for us to deny Jesus? What does it mean for us to be deniers? And what keeps us, number two, what keeps us from falling and becoming deniers? What keeps us? What causes us and what keeps us? If you look at this uh, as it begins... It shows Peter, and we kind of jump right in. They seized him. That means that they seized Jesus, and they're leading him away and bringing him to the high priest's house, which is a really nice uh, house that Peter is following at a distance. Now, some commentators say that that he's still trying to show a measure of courage that he's following him, but at a distance. He's kind of he's kind of said these words of Jesus: "I'm going to follow you unto death. I'll be with you to the end." And so he's kind of trying to be there, and yet when they kindled a fire which which they often did in the March, April times of the year because like we feel here, the weather can go up and down. He's finding himself sitting around a fire watching what's going on with Christ and people start to see this stranger sitting with them and recognizing that, hey, aren't you with them? Aren't you one of them? Aren't you one of those followers? And in fact, the, the three denials themselves are actually a, a, a progression in a sense. And even the fact that they're the first one to recognize him is a slave girl would even say that this person is, is heaping shame, who, someone who would be you know, marginalized in that community is heaping shame upon Peter's own life of denial. And immediately when she says, seeing him, this man was also with him, but he denied it saying, woman, I don't know him. There's this pragmatic a, a, a reaction for Peter It's something he jumps in it's this fear of being connected to there's something that that clicks right for Peter that is, is immediately when he's associated with Jesus and anything that he's about that he clicks back cuz denial is something that we really do a lot more than we think we do denial is something that 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 works within our fears. It's, it's that self-preservation. Look, the New York Times put an article out saying, denial is what makes the world go round. Listen to what they said. Everyone is in denial about something. Just try denying it and watch friends make a list. For Freud, denial was a defense against external realities that threatened the ego, and many psychologists today would argue that it can be a protective defense in the face of unbearable news like a cancer diagnosis. In the modern vernacular, to say someone is in denial is to deliver a savage combination punch, one shot to the belly for cheating or drinking or being doing bad behavior, and another to slap to the head for cowardly self-deception or pretending it's not a problem. Goes on to say that we do this in every, everyday circumstances because it's getting underneath the fact that we don't like who we are. Denial isn't just about what we do, it's actually, it's it's a denial of who we are. Think about it here for a second, okay? Let's put it in this, this connection, especially when it comes to connection to Jesus. It's a rejection of our association with Him. In fact, the Bible has two meanings for it. One is to refuse to recognize that you're with someone Another one is to abandon the solidarity with. So it's those moments when you find yourself at work or at lunch with coworkers or at school and someone, a professor or someone else, makes a comment at the table or from up front and you find yourself just shutting down and being quiet. You find yourself even talking or using vernacular in ways that you can avoid maybe that they think I'm a Christian. And even if they know that you're associated with Jesus, that you can somehow get them to think that you're cool and can keep up. Because for us, the biggest thing is for us to be awkward. If we find ourselves awkward in the moment, that's what we really praise. That's what we really want. We don't want anybody to think we can't socially connect or fit in. We can be Christians, but we have to be cool. Those things have to connect. Am I wrong? Think about the association that we think of that often we're trying to avoid, and maybe even in this room you're here this morning, and you think of these things when you think of Christian or have been treated this way, of bigoted, unintelligent siding with a particular party or politic. Those kind of things that come out that we're we're constantly trying to feel like we're either battling against or we're trying to hide from. Isn't that denial? Isn't that where we come from? Are The the moments where you're surrounded and you watch and and notice even these these denials, it's not just, oh, he was with him, the slave girl says, that he was with Jesus. When Jesus' name comes up and people get a little bit awkward, I had another one of those moments, even as a pastor the other night, somebody said, oh yeah, he's a pastor. And I thought in my heart, God, why do you have to say that? Because immediately this guy just met, a patty corner to me goes, oh God. He literally put his face in his hands because he had just said a few things that he probably felt bad about. Put his face in his hands and I was like, great, here we go. I felt that. Isn't that the case for us? that we want to connect, we want to fit in, but it's not just with Him, but notice right after this, two other people say this in verse 58, and a little later, someone else saw Him and said, you're also one of them. So not just relating to Jesus, relating to those with Him. And that's where it gets even trickier. It's the moments when we're watching TV and we see people holding up signs that are horrible. It's the moment that we hear things from people in our city that this is what Christianity means, and we think, I'm, how am I associated with this? Look, I don't know if you know this, but I'm standing literally where Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King spoke several years ago. There's a plaque right outside. He was actually not... He was supposed to speak at Vandy, and they had him here instead, which is really pretty cool. And one of the things that, that if you read... Um, not only that speech, but letters from a Birmingham jails. One of the things that he markedly says about those who would say they follow Jesus and yet, and yet should help in the cause of injustice is that they are silent. It's not that they're against, it's just that they're silent. I think the question for us is, are we silent in the face of things where we should know who we are but yet we deny it and keep our mouths closed. When it comes to things of race, homosexuality, when it comes to things we see that are horribly portrayed in the way that the gospel shouldn't be said, are we silent? Or should we lean in and love those who are marginalized and bring those and show community and show real life? And yet we can close our mouths and deny. Why is that? I, I think, where does this truly come from? Here's an interesting thing that, that you may not think about right before this that Jesus talks to Peter about, is that Peter is incredibly bold. I don't know if you know that. Peter is, is known for his impulsiveness, Right? And one of the things in Matthew chapter 26, and this is kind of a related passage to this one, it says that Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, Here's what Peter says in response Even if I must die with you, I will not die with you. And all the disciples said the same. And yet, what happens? They'll scatter. Why? Because here's at the root of our denial is that our faith is often in our faith. Peter's faith in that moment, you see, is not necessarily in the object of Jesus in this denial and even in this moment. It's in his strength of following Jesus. And isn't that where denial finds the simplest, smallest cracks in our faith? Because we have our faith in our faith. We feel as though if we, if we get a part of knowledge, if we connect in some way to God, that our faith is made strong. But what really is our faith? What, what does it connect to? Is it to how strong we believe? What puts Jesus on the throne? Is it our praises? Is it what we believe? Or is Jesus on the throne, therefore we believe? Do we put Jesus on the throne because we ha- understand that he's king? Or do we understand because he's king? Does his position already of authority determine that? Or do we really think our faith is strong because we are strong? That's really it. Because that's what happens when you want to deny Jesus in those moments at the dinner table, or at, in a classroom, or with a coworker wherever it may be, when we wanna close our mouths, where denial really comes in, strong is when we really think we have it down. I got, my, I got this. Isn't that when that kernel of, quote, new information from some expert that tells us that we go, wait, is this really true? It's one thing to ask a question, it's another thing to say, uh, I don't know, Is it because we know, because we have all the answers to the questions, or is it because there's someone else who does? Because that's where it comes. It's the confidence in self. There's a great book by by another theologian named Horatio Bonner. He said this. He talked about what it creates in us when we have faith in our own faith is deep anxiety. Doesn't it make you have anxiety when you kind of go, I don't know what's really true. Yeah, you feel strongly one way, and then something comes in, and it all just causes a right turn. He says this. He says, you seem to think that it's your own act of faith that is to save you. Forget everything about yourself. Your faith, your frames, your repentance, your prayers, look to Him. It is in Him and not in your poor act of faith that salvation lies. It is in Him and in His boundless love that you find a resting place. Out of him, not of your own exercise of soul concerning him. Peace comes through him. Looking at your own faith will only minister to you self-righteousness. It only builds you up, only to be knocked down again. With the next stronger punch. The next thing that comes. Because what's coming ahead of Peter? The cross. And wasn't it where Peter's most impulsive push against Jesus was when Jesus kept talking about, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to the cross. He was like, "What? are you crazy? And Jesus pushes back so hard to say something that is is just so incredibly counterintuitive. He says, get behind me, Satan, to Peter. Because Peter doesn't understand that the mission, the follow-through, the what he's doing, has to go to the cross. And even in that, Peter's denying, no, 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 what are you talking about. And here before his eyes, Jesus is about to be crucified. And he's face to face with the reality of he thought, no, there's no way it could go through the cross. There's no way this this beautiful ministry could die and it's right in front of him. There's no way. What keeps us from denying? What keeps us in our denial? What keeps us from falling away? Is it our strength or is it something else? I want you to see something here that that can be easily missed in this passage. It's in verse 61. Well, I'll read 60 just for context. Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And then... Verse 61, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times, and he went out and wept bitterly. The word turn and look is a deep phrase, actually, in the, in the scriptures. It's a phrase meaning to turn and gaze into, to cause to admonish, to cause to repentance, to turn, right? And notice something, Peter is more than willing to disassociate with Jesus. But even in the most crucial moment of denial, who associates with Peter? Jesus. Can you imagine being Peter in that moment? Because it's not the rooster. The rooster's crowing while he's still speaking. It's not the rooster that jogs his memory. It's catching the eyes of Jesus Christ after he has not once but three times Said, I have no idea who he is. And the deep shame that he would incur. And we tend to think of that and we look and we say, well, the look of Jesus. I mean, that's like what we're all scared of, isn't it? I mean, of all the ways that you deny him in the moment and you walk away and you feel just maybe a little twinge of shame, but you kind of feel that self preservation, like, okay, I'll live to see another day. Imagine you seeing the eyes of Jesus. Imagine in those moments you actually stop and you go, what am I doing? Who am I? And you know what's beautiful about that? Why does Luke write such detail like that? Because he wants us to know that Jesus doesn't just look away from Peter in his denial. And he doesn't look over Peter's sin like, see, told you so. He looks at Peter because he knows him. If there's something that breaks into denial a heart of denial that's so easy to do it's being seen by the one you've denied it's being known as a denier and yet he still stands with you he still looks at you he doesn't look over you he doesn't look away from you as many of us think he would To say, God, He doesn't roll His eyes. He captures you with them. And it causes Peter to weep, and it should us. It should cause us. If you want something practical from this, we really should, in this moment, in those moments, catch our denial, and we should weep. And Peter's weeping is not one of just staying in shame. It's knowing that he is one of denial. Have you ever had somebody actually stand with you, like you've actually harmed? And instead of turning away from you, they actually turn towards you? It almost would feel better sometimes if they pushed away from you, right? There's a, there was an article put in a, p- a paper some time ago of a pastor who was pulled over for a, a DUI. And this is a haunting article, because it makes you think in many ways, but another pastor actually wrote in that same paper an opinion piece to this, addressed to this pastor, but publicly, and this one who was pulled over. He said, as a fellow pastor in the Presbyterian Church in America, I want to make sure that Reverend Shelton Sanford, for whom I do not know is not the only ordained man whose name is listed here as a big sinner. This could have been me. This could have been any of us. Give me the right opportunity, background, and occasion, and there is no sin which I would not commit. This is the moment for the church to show and extend the grace of Jesus in ways that no other religion can offer. Every other religion says, be good be, and, and then be loved. And the gospel declares that it is wretched, sinful, careless, and even DUI-getting preachers who Jesus came to live and die for. It's my prayer and my hope that this Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Hill find a great opportunity for grace in this moment. The only safe prophet is named Jesus, not Shelton. Jesus will never fail. He loves sinners, even preachers. Shelton, my brother, grace, God's grace is sufficient Others may be ashamed of you, you, but the Father slaughters fattened calves for prodigal preachers too. I am not ashamed to call you a fellow minister, brother, or Christian, because Jesus is not ashamed of me. Some of you in this room are thinking, gosh, how could he say that? This man, you know, you don't want to excuse his sin. Okay, sure. Sure. But in all of our hearts, if we're really understanding who we are as deniers of Jesus in those moments, just like Peter, the found, one of the cornerstones of our actual faith, we stand on Peter's shoulders to even do what we're doing here. Can we not admit and know ourselves that Jesus doesn't look, he doesn't look over sin. He addresses it, but he knows you because he looks at you. And yet, even before this, he knows Peter's weakness. Even in Luke, just like literally verses before this, he says, Peter, I have prayed for you that Satan would not sift you, wouldn't tear you apart. I've gone before you because you will do this. Wait a minute. Jesus knows, even before Peter does the denial, that he will deny him, and yet he still Moves in relationship with him. He still loves him. He still enters in with him. See, the essence of denying is wanting to hide. This is what happened at the very beginning of the Bible. The whole Bible begins that way. It's Adam and Eve, the story of the garden. When sin enters, the first thing they want to do is hide. They want to deny that they did anything against God they want to deny that that even when they're asked individually they're like the man says no the woman did it the woman says no the serpent did it I mean they deny everything and yet what does God do he continues to pursue them not only in that moment but in history denial drives us to hide what is Jesus showing us here for deniers the good news is about being known he doesn't look away He's your advocate before you even ever deny Peter, before you ever said a word, before the rooster even woke up that day, I was praying for you and I'm with you. Don't you know that Jesus isn't associated with you because you're good? He already knows that you're going to walk out these doors and you're going to deny him in some way, shape, or form. And yet he Pursues you. He doesn't look past you or away from you. He looks at you, and he remains your advocate. His eyes stay with you. Look, I um, I come from a family. There's a lot of alcoholism in our family. And when I was in seminary, I studied um, marriage and family therapy as kind of a, a as a um, an emphasis in my degree, and I remember part of my study uh, was learning about my own family, like really gathering, studying, and I know that that's in me, you know, that, that part genetically as well as, you know, consciously, um, and by God's grace, I've, I haven't gone down that path, but I know I know exactly what that means, and I've seen that, I've grown up with that, I was able to go to some AA meetings because I really wanted to learn what, what is this, what is this, how does this work, to think about my family, to think about what that's like. And some of you in this room know exactly what that is. And I remember sitting in that room and just observing. Um, they were so kind to let me come sit in on this meeting and just for me to learn how do I love my family better, how do I know myself better, and thinking in that room of these people are just open. The first thing they have to do in an AA meeting is you can't deny. You can't deny of who you are. Or there's no way you're gonna grow. There's no way you're in relationship. There's no way you have people in there. It is the most open, soul-bearing place because you cannot deny what you deal with. What if we understood that gospel in the church more? That greater eyes have we on us as an advocate in Christ. That we come to a table for people like you and me who deny Jesus. We come to a table for this reason. We come to a table because right when Jesus resurrects from the dead, we're going to celebrate that in a week. And when he resurrects from the dead, do you know who he asks for first? He says in Mark chapter 16, verse 7, right after he resurrects, he goes, But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you in Galilee. Do you see that Jesus goes before your denial? He is with you in it to cause you to weep and see and repent and turn from the ways that you think you're so strong in your faith and he comes after it to resurrect and die even in the moment. Notice, what is happening to Jesus while Peter denies him? He's in the act of going to the cross to die for his very denial. Coming to this table doesn't warrant your faith. It doesn't make you a Christian. You come to this table and you partake and you taste the the wine, the bread, and the juice, and the crackers, because Jesus is our faith. He is the way of peace. He is the son that took up the cross so that you may be brought in as sons and daughters. If you're here this morning, and that's one of those things that's really hard for you to grasp, really hard for you to take in, I would encourage you not to come to this table just because everybody else is doing it stay in your seat, contemplate, come forward, fold your hands as we form semicircles, receive prayer in those moments. But come to this table only if you say, you know what, I I am a denier, but Jesus keeps me. He's my savior, helper, keeper, friend. He is with me to the end. Let's stand together.